Welcome to the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. Today we'll be discussing the article titled Online Control of Reach Accuracy in Mice. This article was published September 30th, 2020. Joining me today are Editor-in-Chief Nino Ramirez and the senior author Abigail Person. So let's get started. So hi, Abby, and it's wonderful that we have the opportunity to talk here on this podcast series. And you know what really intrigued me in your study was that you address many fundamental questions that are critical for understanding, you know, the neural control of reaching movements and in movements in general. And uh, perhaps if you can explain to us, you know, by dissecting a grasping movement, what are the specific problems that the brain has to solve in order to achieve the goal and grasp, for example, something like a peanut, for example. So maybe let's start with this. Okay. Well, I mean, like most of my papers, I feel like something of an interloper in everything that I do. Um, <laughs> and this is, you know, this was our like first real foray into comparative kinematics. And so, you know, there are countless papers from the primate literature about the organization of reaching movements. And, you know, they go back to Woodworth in 1899, who thought a lot about reaching movements. And so to answer your question, I would say that there are uh, well understood planning phases. So some kind of target needs to be identified in the environment, the animal needs to then adjust its balance point in order to or center of gravity so that it doesn't topple over as it's reaching. And then it needs to move its limb to the target. In the case of a grasping goal, it needs to adjust its hand position in advance of, of reaching the target and then grasp the target with appropriate forces and bring it back to its body, either directly to its mouth or just wh whatever its, you know, secondary goal is. And so the, you know, set of neural events that has to accomplish all of that is vast. And in fact, I think there's a rich active field of neural control of reaching and pointing and grasping to this day because there's so much depth to this seemingly simple behavior. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And you know what? And, and your study has a little bit of an evolutionary component in there because, you know, we have studied so much primates, but the mouse is an interesting alternative because you have all the genetic models, et cetera. And, but to what extent, you know, are there similarities and are there preserved, evolutionary preserved patterns that you also can study in a mouse and that are maybe not there in a mouse? Yeah, so there, you know, there's a beautiful study from, I want to say Iwaniuk and Wishaw. So Ian Wishaw was, is really the, the grandfather of this rodent reaching model in general and, and is a real scholar of reaching movements in general. And they have a nice paper in a current opinions paper that dissects the sort of comparative evolutionary origins of uh, reaching to grasp movements across, you know, vertebrates. And so they go into some depth and analyze the literature for examples of reaching and grasping behavior across taxa. And they come to the conclusion that reaching and grasping movements evolved early or emerged early in tetrapod lineage and then were lost in some other species. And so they speculate that maybe scooping motions where either the you know, animal's scooping up some food 
or water might have been sort of a predecessor to the reaching and grasping movements that we we are uh, more familiar with. But this viewpoint isn't necessarily shared by everyone. And I think that there are some people that argue that, you know, primates are the primary reachers in the animal kingdom. But I think that this paper, the paper that we just published, was an attempt to really take seriously this idea of homology and say, look, let's really take this apart. Let's Let's ask um, what are the shared kinematic features across mice and primates? And we draw upon the rich literature in primates to say, okay, you know, what are considered some of the fundamental characteristics of primate reaching movement? These include things like bell-shaped velocity profiles, late phase kinematic adjustments, sort of pre-planning of a impulse phase or ballistic component of the, of the movement that's then modified later, later on. There's speed accuracy trade-offs that, that are well-characterized in primates that we observe in mice. There's adaptive scaling of late phase kinematic features to specific kinematic features early in the reach. We find that there's you know, trial over trial adjustment of endpoint in a eumetric sense. So reaches that are hypermetric tend to be followed by a, a hypometric reach and vice versa. And so, so everywhere we look, we see that, you know, there's a rich structure to these movements that's shared across these species. And so insofar as I am deeply sympathetic to the sort of impoverishment of neuroscience that is brought upon by focusing so much on mice, I think that we nevertheless leave things on the table if we don't take my seriously as a component of this comparative landscape. And so I, I'm hopeful that this paper will at least provide a resource where I think deeper conversations could happen between people studying the neural basis of reaching in mice and that those studying neural basis of reaching in primates. That is fascinating. And, and, and I think that makes a lot of sense to, to look at the mouse as, a, as an organism and, and go deeper in the comparative part. And so my question is also, when it comes to precision of these movements, I think there was one aspect that where actually you built in variability in order to be more effective in, in reaching something. And to what extent did you see this actually in mouse and also in, in primates? Um, are, are you referring to sort of the uh, idea that variability is kind of a substrate upon which motor learning occurs? Yes, yes, in that direction. Yeah. Well, so, you know, we didn't study learning or we don't have a learning component in this study. But because of my training in songbirds, I have a an abiding love for this idea that during motor learning, especially learning a skill for the first time, that motor variability is an exploratory phase. And through sort of random walk, correct outcomes can be discovered and then reinforced and then, and then built into a more stereotyped motor plan. And so in the mouse reaching movements themselves, um, we, uh, well, and I have like credit where credit's due. So my student, Matt Becker, who's the first author on this paper, loves basketball. And he loved the Golden State Warriors. And there is a part in this paper where he goes in and actually, you know, read up on the analysis of hot handedness in specifically Golden State Warriors shooters because they're so good. 
And, um, and so, you know, the, the question he asked was whether the mice themselves show hot hand. And, and so he did this hot hand analysis and found very few instances that would be statistically um, suggestive of hot handedness, which is similar to the kind of paucity of evidence for hot handedness or cold handedness in, in humans doing some complex thing like uh, shooting a basketball. But what was interesting to me is that as we kind of thought about this in the context of the trial over trial improvement in behavior, as if, you know, okay, the animal actually gets better at this. If you put these two things together, it, it's actually kind of suggestive of the maintenance of some uh, level of variability in the, in the output of the motor system. Because while the animal gets better, it never gets to the point where it is spot on every single time. And so there's hmm. something difficult about the arrangement of the you know, location of the pellet in our paradigm so that the animal isn't locked in. And so there's, there's some kind of an interplay with the animal getting better, but then not locking on and staying perfect. Um, and so I don't know if that answers your question, but, but I do think that there are sort of opposing mechanisms in the brain, some of which are producing variability and some of which are fighting off variability. And in, in Matt's uh, previous paper, we argue that the cerebellum emits a code that seems to reduce endpoint variability, enhancing uh, reach precision. And so we would probably ascribe a little role for the cerebellum in reducing variability, but that leaves the rest of the motor system available to produce variability. Abby, you answered my question spot on because I was so intrigued by this hot-handedness at the end of your article and thought, wow, you know, this, this makes a lot of sense. And it's fascinating that you don't get 100% perfection. And, and, and my question now comes uh, to another aspect that I, I learned from your website and you refer to the Bach Society. And I've learned also that you're a violinist. So of course, in playing a keyboard or a violin, you, you are totally relying on precision in the microsecond range. And, uh, but yet, of course, you want to have space for, for musicality, etc. So do you think that is related to this, that also you have precision in finding the right key, etc., but at the same time have variability to be able to, to go beyond just the mechanics of the music? Uh, yes. I mean, I think that when you observe, well, I'll say this. Um, I think it's important to practice in relaxed settings where you are essentially messing around. And when you are practicing in settings where you feel like you're being listened to or judged, you tend to narrow your focus and, or not in a good way either, just you play the things you already know how to play. And so I think this, this idea of motor exploration is, is very fundamental to learn, learning these complex skills. And I think it goes beyond this kind of trivial example I just gave to um, if you watch uh, music teachers with young violin students, they'll often have them do weird things like here, play while you walk around or play while you lie on your back or play with your, you know, standing on one foot. I think that these variations of the motor plant, the overall body help the student develop 
rich internal models of not only their own body, but also the instrument itself. And that that, you know, kind of put together enhances the kind of level of intuition that the player has about their instrument and enhances their ability to use it in an expressive manner. And so that gets away from the sort of rote input output trap that I think some some students can fall into. Very fascinating. I can totally relate to this. And uh, my question, uh, what about the neuroscience behind this? I mean, do you think you, you mentioned that cerebellum plays a role here in turning on this precision? And, and so how do we play between basal ganglia, motor cortex, cerebellum in the control? Are they involved in everything like this or, or are there specific aspects of the reaching movement that are controlled more by motor cortex, by basal ganglia, by cerebellum? Can you generalize something like this? Yeah, I don't think we know. I mean, there are ideas out there. I personally think that we will be able to, at some point, ascribe specific uh, sort of roles for these different parts of the motor system. I think the cerebellum, if I had to guess, and because I study the cerebellum, I feel like I get to. Um, if I had to guess, I think the cerebellum is a general uh, sort of predictive engine. I think that it anticipates things in, ahead of when they start and it anticipates things ahead of when they stop. And it uses internal models to make those predictions temporally precise. And the end result is to enhance precision of all sorts of movements. I think that the motor cortex is the interface of you know, the planning parts of the brain and, and action and I think that goal-directed movements really rely on motor cortex, but it is of all of the, mo the most mysterious to me. And then basal ganglia, um, you know, I, I think that the sort of trivial sort of offering is, um, it's a reinforcement engine, it's, uh, it's selecting motor programs. I think that there is, uh, deeper role for the basal ganglia in this uh, sort of variability regulation component and motor learning. Um, but I, I don't know what it is. And it seems to sort of kind of uh, fall in and out of people's focus. But since I'm not in the basal ganglia any longer, I, I don't really know where people are in their thinking about basal ganglia and variability regulation. I mean, if you can't talk forever on this, especially now when you think about development, you know, I'm like, you know, like, why do you have to start learning an instrument very early on? Or why do you need to learn skiing when you're like young? And, and all these questions, you know, where cortex develops later, but you, you, you know, these, all these connectivity is established much later during development. And, and to what extent, basically, you need to have those different parts of the brain at different developmental stages, you know, so... But, but let's, I, I want to ask you something about your team and, you know, how did you plan this project and, and what, what's the story behind these discoveries that you made? Well, like I said, I think my student, Matt Becker, deserves a huge amount of credit. And he got a nice assist from younger student, Dylan Callum, who's a, another author in the paper. And Matt, Matt started his uh, PhD studying 
um, reaching movements. And, you know, at the time we were not uh, at all sure what the cerebellum did for reaching movements. And so that was the focus of his PhD. And so much of what he was doing was focused on the actual neurobiology of cerebellar control of reaching movements. But, you know, in the process, he recorded the kinematics of tens of thousands of normal reaches, unperturbed reaching movements of mice. And so he was really interested in, in drawing these parallels to the literature that gave rise to all of these beautiful hypotheses about precise motor control. And so he, he really dove in. I give him all the credit. He dove into the literature and uh, this was his kind of final piece of his thesis before he left. And along the way, um, we met up and collaborated with Julia Robel, who is a new um, statistics uh, professor here at the Anschutz campus at the University of Colorado. And, um, and she brought uh, to the table these interesting uh, machine learning statistical analysis methods. Um, and so in the paper, we do a analysis of the reach kinematics along different phases of the reach and ask the question, you know, what are the kinematic uh, segments that predict success? And it was through some of those analyses where we were able to really highlight the kinematic specificity of the end, end point phase and not just the position. So we could throw away positional information and still see that the, the later phase of these movements is critical for the movements to be successful. And so the, the four of us ended up with, like I think every paper as it goes, endless meetings and conversations and, and it came together that way. Wonderful. You know, I mean, really, it was the machine learning aspects that you had in this paper and the computational aspect that totally fascinated me because I think that's the future where, you know, the observation becomes predictive and, and that was totally great. So what's the next steps from here? So where do you want to develop this project to, like, for example, a lot of these questions can now be addressed optogenetically, you know, you could perturb, you can activate it. Right. So in this case, we know that activating the intermediate cerebellum, so the interposed nucleus of the cerebellum, exerts an inward pull on the limb. And it happens in very uh, rapidly uh, to produce a real-time control of the limb. We also know that the, the interposed nucleus generates a burst of activity that seems to slow the limb down just endogenously. That seems to be one of its roles. And so, you know, where we're going with a lot of this is adaptation. So trying to link up what we know about the cerebellum and its, and its importance in motor learning to learning contingencies that change with reaching movements. So that's, so that's where we're headed to a large degree is learning. Fantastic. And I hope you submit it to Journal Neurophysiology again. And uh, one, one other question uh, is the translational potential of your work. I mean, like spinal cord injury and grasping movement is always linked. You know, how, how can you think, let's say your approach can help us better tackle these problems that spinal cord injured people have? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. I have been meaning to have 
real conversations with people who develop BCIs um, because in general, brain-computer interface technologies rely on cortical recordings. And what is missing in all of that, of course, are the little contributions of the cerebellum that may not be routed necessarily to the cortex, but may just descend uh, either through the red nucleus or other brainstem uh, intermediaries to enhance uh, limb movements. And so a question becomes how essential is that sort of additive component of cerebellar control for the control of say a robotic limb by neural recordings? And do we need to build a prosthetic cerebellum that can either replicate that computation appropriately or should we record from the cerebellum and add that into our you know, BCI models? So I think that there's quite possibly um, importance in that, in that regard. I also think that there is interest in using, you know, standard or maybe sort of state-of-the-art DBS technology in the cerebellar nuclei to, as a therapy for a variety of motor uh, pathologies like dystonias or ataxias. And I know there are people out there that are working on these technologies now. So That's cool. No, and I think, as I, as I said, I mean, having now a mouse model for this, allows us to test a lot of these PCI ideas maybe in a mouse and, uh, and with using lasers and, and optogenetic stimulations and viral vectors. So I think you really made a huge difference to this field by establishing the kinematics of the mouse. So last minute, do you have an important take-home message that you want readers to remember? Yeah, so I think that when we think about fast movements, like a reaching movement, I want the readers to internalize the idea that mid-reach, there's a huge amount of real-time information that is being used to sculpt the endpoint of the, of the movement. And that fact, that behavioral observation has deep implications for what the brain is doing during these movements. And so I think that um, that is going to lead to a lot of really fun neuroscience to understand that. And I think it will have implications in all the extra things that we talked about, learning, physical performance and, and other things. So, so yeah, I think. Wonderful, wonderful. Abby, it was so much fun to talk to you. And uh, I hope the readers also and the listeners had fun. And <laughs> If they want to know how to play Bach, they now come to you and, and ask you specific questions. <laughs> All the very best and thanks again. Thank and you. Uh, we'll this keep in really touch. Fun. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.